I'll read from verse 16, Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you doing from the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, and jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's ask the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you again for the blessing of your word. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of warning passages that you use to sanctify your people. Lord, we pray that these warnings would uh, hit home for us, Lord, that we would examine ourselves humbly, uh, examine whether these sins are finding a home in us, and so, Lord, by that to be stirred up to repentance. Lord, we pray that your spirit be at work among us uh, to purge ourselves, to purge us by your spirit of any sin. Lord, grant us uh, eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to receive. We pray that you would move in a powerful way through the preaching of your word. Lord, may it be your truth that is making the difference. Lord, may it not be me, get me out of the way, uh, but Lord, may you cause your word to come alive in the hearts of your people. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. Uh, may you be glorified in us, we pray now and always. In the name of Jesus, amen. So we pick up again with our series in Galatians, and last week we began looking at this list of sins that Paul makes in Galatians 5, verse 19. Paul is listing things that he says are the works of the flesh. Having introduced us to the opposition between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit of God, he then gives us a few examples of each. Verses 19 to 21 outline examples of what it looks like when someone is living according to the flesh, living according to the sinful nature. And verse 22, he gives some examples of what it looks like when people live according to the Spirit, all those fruits of the Spirit. So for the Christian then, bearing in mind that this is a letter written to the churches, we find ourselves being invited, or better, commanded, to examine ourselves. What fruit do our lives display? And if we find that our lives are manifesting some of the rotten fruit of living according to the flesh, we should not despair, but rather take the opportunity to do some pruning. Paul's intention in writing this list to the Galatians was not to cause them to despair or abandon all hope if they saw some of these sins in themselves. Rather, his goal was to prick their consciences so that they would feel guilt, shame, and misery over their sin, which would then drive them to repentance. Now, 2 Corinthians actually gives us a very good illustration of how this works. 
In the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul has some very harsh words that he wrote to the church. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul has now received word that his first letter had grieved them. They felt sorrow, guilt, and grief. And here's now what Paul says in response. It's from 2 Corinthians, uh, I didn't write it down, chapter 5, I believe. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, Paul says, although he first felt bad for having grieved the church with his letter, he now says, I don't regret it. Because they felt grief that drove them to repentance. They were grieved into repentance. And so it was a godly form of grief and sorrow. This is what the Holy Spirit produces inside believers in response to sin. So here's how this works. A Christian hears the Word of God issuing a warning. The Holy Spirit then pokes and prods the conscience of that Christian in order to awaken them to the reality that they struggle with that sin. This then produces sorrow over sin. As with the church in Corinth, uh, earnestness, indignation, fear, zeal, and longing to make things right. To put that sin to death. To repent fully. And we see that this is actually a key part of how we are to grow in holiness. Now since growth in holiness is the desire of every true believer, we actually ought to see warning passages like this one as blessings. They are helpful to us because God uses them to sanctify his people, to make them holy, to draw them closer to himself, to make them more aware of their condition apart from his grace, and therefore make them more grateful for the grace that they have through Christ. So with that said, let's look to the text, verse 19, Galatians chapter 5. Now the works of the flesh are evidence, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now last week we made it partway through this list, covering the first five sins, and so we'll pick up this week with the sin of enmity. Now this is hostility or hatred. The person who is living according to the flesh is firstly at enmity with God, and as an overflow of that, will likely be at enmity with others. Now, the word Paul uses is actually plural in Greek, so it would be enmities or hostilities. And so we see one of the things that will characterize those who live according to the flesh will be hostilities. 
Not merely hostile acts, but the underlying hostile sentiments are in view. They are, they are full of enmity. Now, of course, while it is required of us to hate what God hates, to be living at war with sin and battling against the spiritual powers of darkness, you know, loving righteousness and truly hating evil, our hatred of evil must not extend to personal hatred of individuals. While we must show no mercy to false teaching or to evil ideologies, we are still to show mercy to the individuals who are under the influence of such evil. You know, as our Lord Jesus commanded, we are to love even our enemies. Now, it can be tempting for us to use the concept of righteous anger or even a righteous hatred of evil to excuse in ourselves an unrighteous hatred of individuals. We see here that enmities characterize the works of the flesh, and it is not this kind of fruit that the Spirit produces. Sin number two, strife. Strife is quarreling and dissension, discord. You can think of it actually as a natural outcome or byproduct of hatred and enmity. If you are a hate-filled person, you are quite likely a quarrelsome person. Strife, dissension, and unrest will tend to follow those whose hearts are full of enmity and hatred. For as our Lord said, out of the overflow of the heart does the mouth speak. And so whatever is inside you will tend to manifest itself through your behavior. Sin number three, jealousy. Now this again, as with the concept of righteous hatred of evil, uh, jealousy is also a word that can be taken in a positive sense, and actually is used positively uh, in Greek throughout Scripture. And the word in Greek is closely connected to the concept of zeal, right, to be zealous, to be jealous. Uh, in John chapter 2, and this is actually the same word that's used uh, of the Lord Jesus after he cleanses out the temple. You may remember that story, Jesus makes a whip and drives out those who are trading, uh, selling within the temple courts. Uh, and the disciples remembered where it was written in the Old Testament, zeal for your house shall consume me. And so Christ, of course, was not guilty of sin. It was not a sinful zeal or jealousy on his part. Likewise, Paul speaks of himself being jealous for the church of God to be presented to the bridegroom as a spotless bride. And so we need to look at the context to determine whether we are looking at a positive or a negative form of jealousy. And of course, here in our context, this is listed as one of the works of the flesh, uh, listed right alongside enmity, strife, fits of rage, and dissensions. And so we see this then is an envious and contentious form of rivalry. Instead of being zealous for God or for righteous causes, our hearts can become embittered. We become jealous for the wrong causes, quite often ourselves. In our pride, 
we become jealous to see ourselves or our cause uh, advanced in a manner that we should not pursue, or to see our cause advanced to the detriment of others. You know, again, as Thayer's lexicon noted, this is a contentious form of rivalry uh, in this type of jealousy. Sin number four on our list, and we'll come back to deal with these again. Uh, sin number four on our list is outbursts of anger, wrath, fits of rage. To give vent to your anger in an outburst of emotion. You know, you can picture uh, the person who gets angry and then sees red. You know, in cartoons, it's the person who gets so mad that their face turns red and they blow their top. You know, the smoke comes out of their ears or their head turns into a little volcano. Uh, outbursts of anger. And those cartoon images work extremely well because I think we are all familiar uh, with that emotion. So anger and frustration boil over and the result is some kind of an outburst, a fit of rage, uh, yelling, screaming, cursing, hitting things, throwing things, slamming doors, stomping off in a huff. So we ask ourselves, do we do any of these kinds of things when we get angry? Are you prone to fits of rage? outbursts of anger. What comes out of your mouth when you stub your toe? You curse and yell and get angry when you get hurt or things aren't working the way you want them to at your job. Now I confess this is in my nature. I was the kid who fell out of the tree, scraped his knee, and got so mad that he kicked the tree. Hurt my foot in the process. Now, as funny as it might look in a small child doing something like that, a fit of rage, an outburst of anger, is a manifestation of our sinful nature. And yes, we have that even from when we are very small. <clears throat> so let us feel the weight of these words. Look at where this list, uh, where this word is on this list. Outbursts of anger, fits of rage. These are works of the flesh. And actually, those who do such things unrepentantly will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is one where it can be really easy for us to make excuses, right? So, okay, maybe I yell and freak out a bit when I'm angry, but it's okay because I only do it when nobody else is around. Okay, maybe I yell at people a bit when I'm angry, but at least I don't curse at them. Okay, maybe I curse at people when I'm angry, but at least I'm not physically violent. Okay, maybe I get mad and hit things, but it's okay, because at least I don't hit people. You know, on and on we could extend that list. But ask yourself the question, right? Whatever you do or don't do during your fit of rage, is that not still an outburst of anger? And is that not still a work of the flesh? Is this not the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit? You know, specifically peace, patience, and self-control. Brothers and sisters, fits of rage do not come from the Spirit of God. They are a work of the flesh. Put this into death, firstly in yourselves, but then also in your children. You know, as we mentioned, it may be funny 
watching your toddler do something stupid while in a fit of rage, like kicking a tree. But the fact is, tantrums and meltdowns are much less cute and far more destructive when they are thrown by 23-year-olds than by 3-year-olds. But at the root, it's that same sin. You know, what have we seen college students do when they get triggered? They melt down. They scream and curse. They stomp their feet. They start breaking things. They start fires and riots. Well, this is simply what happens when a generation has not been properly disciplined. All of their lives, they've learned that throwing tantrums was a way to get what they wanted, and so they continue to try this as adults. Instead of being taught self-control and the need to work against outbursts of anger, they simply demand safe spaces where they won't have to be around anything triggering. You know, as a side note, you can see the worldview operating here. You know, from this perspective, the problem is not that their sinful hearts are following the desires of their flesh, uh, which is manifesting in sinful outbursts of anger. No, the problem is clearly outside of themselves. The problem is everybody and everything else. The problem is the environment. The problem is people with wrong opinions. And so we just need to change the environment. Right? Don't let contrary opinions be heard. Uh, don't let anything triggering be said. The Proverbs 22 verse 15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Parents, don't raise snowflakes who need safe spaces. Don't raise children who still throw tantrums as adults. God has entrusted you with the rod of discipline in the life of your child, and he expects, it to, expects you to use it to drive such folly far from them. Outbursts of anger. Let's continue on. Sin number five on the list. Rivalries. Uh, this is selfish ambition, uh, specifically with an emphasis on gaining a following for yourself or for your party, right? Trying to court the favor of others, to bring them onto your side in whatever your dispute is. Sin number six, dissensions. This is divisiveness, divisiveness, standing apart, creating divisions which wrongly separate people into pointless or groundless factions, now, creating division where there should not be division. Sin number seven is factions. And this, again, will be the result of the previous two sins on the list. Dissensions and rivalries will inevitably produce factions. Now, these are groups that have formed uh, by those who seek out followers and create division. Right, so their followers will form a group around their common Opinion, right? It's us versus them. Uh, our group, our faction versus their group and their faction. And we'll come back to these sins in a little bit. Sin number eight is envy. Now envy, of course, is related to jealousy and to covetousness. But what we would typically think of as envy is probably closer to the biblical definition of covetousness. Right, we think of envy typically as wanting what somebody else has. Um, and while that is part of it, 
Envy actually goes even further yet. Envy involves spite. For someone with an envious heart, it is not enough for them to simply get the same thing their neighbor has. The envious person requires that their neighbor would also lose it. So as one word study described it, strong feeling or desire that sours due to the influence of sin. The miserable trait of being glad when someone experiences misfortune or pain. So the envious person sees what someone else has and doesn't merely want the same for themselves, but wants the other person to lose it, to be brought low. It is not enough for the envious person to simply gain what others have, to get what they want, but the others also must lose. You can think of this as the opposite of what John the Baptist said about Jesus. Right? The envious person thinks, I must increase, they must decrease. Or even if I don't increase, they must still decrease. You know, once again, understanding the sinful heart of man has worldview implications. Man by nature has a sinful heart, and one of the manifestations of that sinful heart will be envy. Which is why Marxism will never produce utopia. Right? To oversimplify, Karl Marx had the idea that the problems in the world were caused primarily by economic inequality. Right? People having different amounts of stuff. And so if we could just level the playing field so that everyone had the same amount of stuff, we'd have utopia. Right? We could live in peace. Well, the problem is right there in the starting assumption. And that is our problems with one another don't actually stem from something outside of us. Our problems stem from the sin that is inside of us. Right? It is the desires of the flesh. And so making everybody equally wealthy, or more accurately, as Marxism does, making everybody equally poor, would not solve our problems, for it has done nothing to address the sinful heart of man. Make our bank accounts the same, and I can still envy my neighbor just the same. Envy is a sign of a dark and a bitter heart. It is a wicked thing to simply take pleasure in the misfortune of others, to desire to see their persons torn down. This is a desire that is produced by the flesh and not by the Spirit of God. Next sin on the list, drunkenness, deep drinking, intoxication. This is to become inebriated and to do so uh, repeatedly. Now, Scripture repeatedly calls for sober-mindedness. We are not to let anything cause us to lose control. The life of the Christian is to be governed by the Spirit of the living God, and someone who becomes intoxicated is handing the governance of their life over to that substance. Scripture commands us to be sober-minded, to remain in control. And drunkenness, of course, is a violation of this. We'll note, though, that Scripture does not forbid all alcohol use. 
In fact, it is actually commended to us and described as a gift of God. Psalm 104, 14 and 15 speaks of the blessings God has given in creation. It says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Used in moderation, Scripture actually does present alcohol as a blessing from God for his people. However, Scripture also does provide a good many warnings regarding alcohol, as it is very dangerous and destructive when abused. Now, my guess, of, my guess is that most of us here either know someone personally or know of someone who is a drunkard, to use a biblical term. Alcohol abuse destroys lives, livelihoods, homes, and families. Drunkenness involves the loss of control, and so it frequently leads to many of the other sins included on this list. And we see this sin is closely tied uh, to the next sin on the list, continuing on with orgies. Now the Greek word here is komos, which is reveling or a debauched form of partying. It's interesting, to give perspective, the Greeks at this time even had a god by the name of Kamos, and he, of course, was the god of revelry. Now, while sources vary, Kamos appears to be a common feature of Greek life, right? Drunken and debauched parties, frequently held in public, uh, perhaps as a celebration at the closing of athletic contests, or following a banquet in celebration of a citizen who had distinguished himself. Uh, you know, even um, mask wearing was part of this. You could hide your identity as you do this debauched partying. Um, and in any case, we see that this kind of drunken, debauched, uh, sexually immoral behavior was the stacking up of sin upon sin. And so Paul makes it clear that despite how common it might have been in Greek culture, participation in such things is not of the Spirit of God, but is in fact another work of the flesh. Alright, so here we have our vice list. And Paul makes it clear at the end of verse 21 that this is just a sampling. Right? This is not an exhaustive list. And notice he adds, and things like these. So don't get the wrong impression as if these are the only sins or works of the flesh that we needed to be on guard against. Rather, these are just a sampling, and they're actually quite an interesting sampling at that. You may notice Paul strings together some sins that may not at first glance appear like they really belong together. I think he did this on purpose. Now, as commentator F.F. Bruce points out, a good number of these sins are the very sins that the Jews would have pointed to in their polemics against paganism. Right? So these are the things the Jewish people would have pointed to and said, look, here's why paganism is wrong. You're doing all of these things. Those things are unrighteous. So uh, things like sexual immorality, idolatry, sorcery, drunkenness, the commons, these revelings, these were likely the very things that the Jews would have pointed to and criticized in pagan culture. And I think in some ways we are very much the same. We, like the Jews, 
would be rightly critical of the pagans in our day for all of these sins. And so we, like the Jews, would hear Paul listing the works of the flesh, and we're nodding along. Yep, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, and we're going, yep, preach it, brother. And then we hear enmity, strife, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. That might get a little closer to home. I think he draws in his readers by listing some sins that they would have likely openly condemned, and then switches midstream to include things that might not seem to us like they belong in the same category as these other sins, and says these are all works of the flesh. Dissensions, rivalries, divisions, and strife. These are some of the very things that Paul has been criticizing his opponents for in Galatia. Remember, Galatians is addressing the false teaching of the Judaizers, uh, who are drawing people after themselves, you know, gaining following, a following for themselves. And they have been creating division in the body. They have had a spirit of rivalry. And as we've seen earlier, they were also flatterers, uh, making much of the Galatians in order to bring followers after themselves, uh, seeking to court their favor. They have created division in the body, and factions have been developing. Paul says these things are works of the flesh. And so see how important it is that we would have unity in the body of Christ. Now, it can be easy for us to get the wrong idea in a letter like Galatians, and that is, we may see Paul's aggressive, very aggressive, and very strongly worded arguments against the Judaizers. And our temptation can be to let this become our default attitude toward all theological disagreements. But notice here, in the very same letter where Paul has had such strong language for his opponents, he also makes it clear that a spirit of divisiveness, of rivalry, factionalism and strife are not meant to characterize the church or individual Christians. The error here is when we begin to see every single issue as a primary issue. Now Paul argues the way that he does in Galatians because he has made clear that it was the gospel itself that was at stake. We see Paul is actually quite charitable on many, many other issues. Right? When it wasn't the gospel at stake, he was willing to have Timothy circumcised uh, to open a door to ministry. Uh, he would rather lay down his own rights rather than cause a stumbling block to be in the way of his brothers. And so Paul did not take the same approach that he does to the Judaizers. Uh, he did not take that same approach to secondary issues. Now again, this is not to say that we should only care about the quote-unquote gospel issues and not hold our ground on other doctrines, but rather it is a call for charity among brothers. There are many things, many doctrines, about which genuine Christians can disagree and still maintain brotherly fellowship. Again, this is not to say that these other doctrines are not important, 
but rather that they are not things that churches should be dividing over, forbidding people from fellowshipping with them. Now there are always two ditches. And so in the one ditch is the person who makes everything a primary issue. You know, unless you are dotting your I's and crossing your T's exactly the way that they do, they will consider you to be a heretic and cast you out of the kingdom. But the opposite ditch is to abandon all doctrine in the name of unity. You could call this the lowest common denominator Christianity. This perspective says doctrine divides, and so we just won't teach doctrine. We'll keep the focus on the ever-shrinking list of things on which we can all agree. We don't want to find ourselves in either of those ditches. And so the way that we've sought to avoid these ditches in our church is to have a fairly simple membership statement of faith, something that focuses on the essentials, while also being clear that the teaching of our church will be in alignment with our much more detailed 1689 Confession of Faith. So while we will aim to always be doctrinally robust and uncompromising what we believe, we will also strive to be charitable, not requiring our members to subscribe to the Confession, as we do believe there are a good many things in there of which genuine Christians can disagree and still have brotherly fellowship with each other. And so our members, as long as they affirm the membership statement of faith and the membership covenant, are welcome to join as members. Our aim has been to make the door to membership in our church the same size and shape as door to membership in the universal church. That is, if you are a Christian and you are committed to living like a Christian, we, are, we will welcome you into membership. For our life and fellowship together, we will then simply aim to live according to the scriptures. Things like enmity, strife, rivalry, dissensions and divisions, these are the things which will destroy the unity of the body. These are the sins that cause churches to split over useless and petty things. We are one in Christ Jesus. All true Christians are united to the same Christ. We are all members of his body. In Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Holy Spirit is at work to bring unity to the body of Christ. If we are filled with enmity toward one another, we will inevitably create strife, division, rivalry, factionalism, and we will find ourselves working directly against the stated intentions of the Holy Spirit. While he has been working for unity, when we walk according to the flesh, we are opposing his intentions, fracturing and dividing that which he is seeking to unify. So brothers and sisters, examine yourselves.
Is there hostility in your heart that you feel toward a brother or sister in the body? Do you harbor jealousy or envy in your heart? If you allow these sins to go unchecked, they will manifest themselves in strife and dissensions and will create division within the body. Not only this, but these two are works of the flesh. Listed here right alongside those things which we might consider the more egregious sins. And so a list like this one will help us to guard against self-righteousness. Right? It can be very tempting for us to think that, well, because I'm not doing those outward and obvious, the high-handed sins, that I'm actually a pretty great person. We can begin to adopt the perspective of the Pharisee in Jesus' parable. Remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, who begins to pray, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. You know, apply it to this list. I have been faithful to my wedding vows. I have never dabbled in witchcraft. There are no idols in my home. I don't drink and I close the blinds whenever the revelers are passing by. Never mind that I am bitterly jealous of my neighbor. I have a heart full of rage and hostility that bubbles over into outbursts of anger when things don't go my way. To become self-congratulatory about your holiness because you avoid certain sins while giving a free pass to other sins is the height of hypocrisy. It is this kind of thing that brought some of the harshest rebukes from the Lord Jesus. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all manner of uncleanness. So you outwardly appear beautiful, appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Matthew 23, 27, 28. You know, while it is true, that some sins are more heinous than others. While it is true that some sins are more destructive than others, we must recognize all sin is evil. It is all rebellion to our God and Maker, and it is all deserving of God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. And so it doesn't matter if we have been avoiding the quote-unquote big sins if at the same time we are giving a free pass to other sins, right? The sins that are not so obvious, perhaps the sins that are socially acceptable and may even be at times considered acceptable in the church. All sins, even the ones we might consider small, are enough to damn our souls for eternity if we will not repent of them. And so this warning is given, not just for those sins that are big and obvious and characterize the lives of the pagans, but also for these sins of the heart, enmity, jealousy, envy, fits of anger. 
So we see Paul makes his list. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, and drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now we do need to be clear. Paul is not saying, Paul is not saying that a Christian is forfeiting his salvation if he does something on this list. Rather, he is describing patterns of behavior and our responses to them. He's giving examples of what a life lived according to the flesh will manifest. A Christian is not a person who never sins. We unfortunately will not reach perfection in this lifetime. But a Christian is a person who is at war with their sin. A person who knows what to do when they sin. Because we have the Spirit of God, because we now love God more than anything else, our heart's desire, produced by the Spirit, will be to do that which pleases Him and to stop doing that which grieves Him. Those whose lives are characterized by the works of the flesh, people who are not battling against these things, who are not repenting, when they fall into these things but have made these sinful patterns a part of their lifestyle, are giving evidence that despite what they might profess, they have no true faith. Their profession of faith is hollow. It is a profession of faith that produces nothing in them. It is a faith without works and therefore a dead faith. James 2.26 this is not the kind of faith that God gives. And so if you find yourself here, right, you recognize, oh man, this describes me. Right, you have patterns of sin in your life that you have not been battling. And you are wondering now if you have ever had the root of the matter in you. Do not despair. The guilt you feel is wonderful and godly guilt. It is a form of grace. And the purpose of this guilt is to drive you to repentance. Guilt and misery for sin are a great sign that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. As Bob Parsons put it, you can tell your faith is real if when the Holy Spirit pricks your conscience, you bleed repentance. So walk by the Spirit. Confess that sin to God and throw yourself upon His mercy and you will find perfect forgiveness. For this is precisely what Christ came to accomplish. Through His atoning work, dying on the cross for our sins, rising again, having offered Himself as a once-for-all sacrifice for sins, he has purchased the pardon and redemption of all who will come to him in faith and repentance. 
So come without hesitation. The moment you realize you have sinned, repent. Confess that sin to God. Keep short accounts and confess that sin to any people you have sinned against. And even after this, do not be surprised or dismayed if you find that this sin continues to be a battle and that you still fail sometimes. This does not mean that you are not saved. While God does sometimes completely remove temptations for his people, most of the time, sanctification is a process. It is a walking by the Spirit, growing in our affection for God, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and seeing your heart's affections change. The fact that it doesn't happen as fast as we might like it to does not mean that it's not still happening. Pursue the Lord. Don't underestimate what God will do through steady, long-term obedience. Day in, day out, week in, week out. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh.